You're tuned in to Positively Terrible. I'm producer Dan, and each week my buddy Scott and I discuss surviving and thriving after trauma. It's a journey that started when Scott, his wife's fiance, and her boyfriend walked into a bar. In this episode, we hear Bill's fucked up story about addiction and recovery. Settle in, my terrible listeners. Today's episode is going to be Positively Terrible. Hey, Scott. Dan, how are you? I'm good, man. How are you? Oh, I am doing really, really well. I'm in a great mood today. Um, I'm, I'm excited about the podcast. It's been kind of an incredible three weeks. Yeah, it has. Yeah. I, I mean, we've gotten more terrible listeners uh, in the last few weeks than I, I, I ever expected. I, I honestly thought that, that we might never hit these numbers, and we're doing pretty well. <laughs> we are doing pretty well. Uh, we've recorded these so long ago that it just seems like we might as well put it out and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. And it turns out that there's more demand for fucked up stories than I realized there was. So, uh, um, would have known, Hey, we're going to keep them coming. We've got a bunch of interviews lined up. So producer Dan, I, I've got to give you a lot of credit. I think that these sound like they're more than just, uh, produced by some amateurs. And it's just, I, I think that it's going incredibly well, both on our side and in building a terrible listener base. And I, I couldn't be more grateful right now. So um, thank you for what you're doing. It's been awesome. Well, I never like to get praise. Uh, it makes me feel weird, but it does <laughs> kind of feel good. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, for sure. And hey, did you, have you seen the Weird Al movie, the, the new one? Oh, with uh, Harry Potter. Uh, yeah, that guy. The, the yes. reason I'm asking is because I feel like, you know, this is this next episode. I think we're going to learn a lot right now because there's a part of me that uh, thinks that we might have gotten a, a Yankovic bump uh, that from from neighbor Francis last week that yeah. we got a lot of listeners because, man, that dude is a charismatic man. I love that guy. I can't wait to talk to him more. Yeah, and we're we're definitely I've talked to him a couple times. There will be more episodes featuring Francis at some time because the terrible listeners have asked for it. So we're gonna we're we're gonna give that to you at some point. <laughs> Perfect. All right. So a couple of things that I wanted to say, Dan, just as we've been listening to the episodes that we've done, today's episode and even last week's episode, there are some things that are out of order that maybe we say that don't make a lot of sense. But it's because, you know, after a year and a half, we've reviewed these, we've decided, okay, we've got to move these around or, you know what, that episode, we weren't quite hitting our stride yet. So we were got rid of it or it just didn't really match what we've decided this podcast is going to be. So we want, we, we, we didn't want to put them into this season. Um, so if you hear things, I know that there's stuff today that says, oh, we talked about this in prior episodes. If that's news to you, even though you've listened to prior episodes, that's the reason. As we get going, we're going to do a better job about pumping out episodes and, and keeping them in chronological order. So forgive us. Uh, it's not because we're amateurs. Well, no, actually, that is kind of because it's, we're it's amateurs. It's definitely because we're amateurs. <laughs> but we're figuring this out. And it, that's what the most incredible thing is, that we're figuring this out and having a ton of fun and uh, putting out episodes every week. We do have uh, some people who've reached out to us who are interested in being guests in the future. So if you are interested in being a guest in the future, uh, you can go to the Facebook page, send us a private message there. Uh, so that's facebook.com slash positively terrible. Yep. Or you can't. Yes. That <laughs> Scott's got it, man. I'm real good on this microphone today. Yeah. Well, you're, you're just back from vacation, Dan. How was that? 
Vacation was awesome. We went on a cruise. I never thought I'd be a cruise person. But it turns out on cruises, they have a spot where your kid can just go play with other kids. And then you can go to the spot of the ship where only adults get to go and there's no screaming and there's no crying and you just sit in a hot tub. And that's what I did with my hot wife. Oh, I wasn't picturing the hot tub. What I, I was picturing white slacks and a blazer. Did you bring that out for like a formal night? Yes. And someone folded them for me while I was in the hot tub. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, that sounds incredible. Um, I'll, I'll also mention, Dan, that you said you've got you've still got sea legs. Yes. You, you feeling any better yet? Man, so we were on a boat in the Pacific, and it rocked, and you got used to it rocking. And then that I, we, I got off this ship three days ago, and still, like, I feel like I'm sitting on a moving pier all the time. It's real weird. <laughs> I actually had never realized that sea legs was a actual term from being out on the sea i've heard it used for other things before uh but that's super interesting to learn i I guess i'm i'm just glad that you're still on your feet me too uh and apparently this can last up to a week so uh check in next week terrible listeners and see if i can still stand up um the 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 final thing that i that i do want to say is you know the last week's episode with neighbor francis um was a very important one for me and you know, building community and, and being having good neighbors is such a kind of incredible thing that I haven't had in my adult life. And this past weekend, I, I had an incident, um, turned out okay, but I had to call Francis at 10 o'clock on Saturday night and ask him to call 911 for me. Uh, the ambulance came, checked me out, everything was okay. Turned out it was just an, an anxiety attack. Uh, I've never had one before. I thought that I had, but this thing was pretty intense and and felt like a a, a heart attack, or at least what I'd imagine a heart attack is like. And it was very humbling to call someone and say, hey, I think I need you to call 911 for me. Or I think I said, take me to the hospital. He's like, do you need me to call 911? I didn't want to say yes, but I did. And kind of stumbled outside. I was shaky on my feet. I, my ears were ringing super loud. My chest wow. was tight. My breaths were shallow. And I walked outside and Francis and, and his fiance were, were out there. And, you know, they, they saw me into the ambulance. I, I sat in there for a while, was evaluated, got to make my own decision of what I wanted to do. Got out of the ambulance. They were still outside. They'd actually locked up their their house and everything because they were going to go with me. They were going to follow the ambulance if, if I had to go. And it was very emotional when this was happening and scary. But one of the things going through my head is I've got nobody living with me anymore and I'm alone. If this happens and I don't have someone that can help that that's a scary thing. And after I got out and, you know, we decided that I was okay. Uh, Jen and Francis uh, invited me in and they, you know, Francis kept asking me questions and I'm sure it was just to keep me talking, to keep me alert, make sure that I didn't just fall asleep and and have whatever happens happen. So just another reason why neighbor Francis is such a great person, but also it's just, it's so important that we have, have those people in, in our lives. And the family you build. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better. I'm glad it wasn't imminent death or, yeah. you know, 
Uh, yeah, it's going to be a slow, uh, painful one instead. But, but, but I'm alive today, and we've got more episodes to release. So, damn, should we get into this? Well, just a quick warning. Today's fucked up story has plenty of discussions about substance abuse and some thoughts of suicide. If that's too fucked up for you, my terrible listeners, we'll see you back here next week. And with that, let's get on to Bill. You're tuned in to Positively Terrible. I'm producer Dan, and each week my buddy Scott and I discuss surviving and thriving after trauma. It's a journey that started when Scott, his wife's fiance, and her boyfriend all walked into a bar. This week we're talking with Bill. Settle in, my terrible listeners. Today's episode is going to be Positively Terrible. How's it going, Scott? Bill, welcome to the Terrible Studio. Hey, guys. Hey, Bill. Hey, Dan. How are you, man? I'm pretty good, man. How are you doing this week? Oh, I, I'm doing all right. It's been kind of a weird couple of weeks since we recorded last. Yeah, it, it's been a long time. I feel like I haven't seen you in forever. I'm sorry. I, I can send you pictures in the intervening weeks if that's what you'd like. <laughs> that would be helpful. Thank okay, you. I'll, I'll do that. But it's been a, a weird couple of weeks, I'll say. I've uh, had my first post-marriage relationship kind of come to an end. Okay. Um, it was It was mutual. I, I know everyone says that, but... It was one that was uh, very nice and fulfilling and uh, helped me get kind of back out there. But from the beginning, she'd asked me, like, what are you looking for? And my answer at the time was, I don't know. You know, it was that I wasn't trying to jump into any relationship, um, but I wasn't against something developing. And after a month and, and some change, maybe, and some dates and getting high in a dog park and teaching me a few <laughs> things. Um, it was clear that, you know, she said she was kind of on the verge of developing some feelings. And, you know, I wasn't. I, I, I like her. I'm really, really glad I had some of my first experiences post-marriage with this woman. I, I think she's kind of a part of my story now in my recovery, but it just wasn't time. Fair enough. So it's uh, weird, I guess, to have... Another relationship end? <laughs> Man, I went 15, 18 years without relationships ending, and now I've had two in the last three, four months. So it's uh, going to increase exponentially is my guess. Right. I think the more you do it, the more you're going to get used to that, Scott. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I didn't feel bad about it. It, it was one of those things that I kind of felt that she was really starting to develop some feelings and we talked a few times and and she told me that she you know no I'm 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 okay we can keep doing this and then last Wednesday or something she was like mm, yeah I'm I'm I am and it kind of left the door open for me to to say okay yeah I'm in and I couldn't and it felt pretty terrible to be laying there with a woman and not be able to say you know yeah I'm I can do this because I, I would want to. It's she's a cool woman. I've, I had some good times with her and I do feel bad about the timing. And, and that's what she said. She's like, the ter timing is terrible. I wish this is another time. And I told her the timing is terrible for one thing. But for me, it was kind of important for me and that I'm glad she was the one to be there at this time. Well, so, it sounds like it ended amicably, at least. Yeah, it did. But now she wants some space, and you know sure. I was kind of hoping to go into this and 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 have a cool new friend, and I might still, but I don't really know what to do. She just said she wanted space, so I stopped texting, and 
I guess you wait until they text you if they want space, but I don't know, maybe give it a month or something and I'll check in. Exactly. Time. Yeah. Yeah. It's cliche, but they, they say time heals all wounds, and that's not necessarily true. But um, in this case, <laughs> I could see it being true. Well, I, I think that time heals something in most sure. or all cases. <laughs> right. it, it doesn't necessarily heal everything, but I do think that you start to feel a little better after time. For sure. But, Bill, thanks for coming today. Really so, appreciate it. This is, what, maybe our third third interview that we're, we're conducting? Yeah, this is uh, three or four. Yeah. So really exciting stuff. You're getting in at the ground level. We are not giving shares of our stock to our guests, but uh, <laughs> if you want half a nutty buddy that I got from Aldi, um, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Now, if you get three friends to be guests, then you get a share. Okay. And every time each one of those friends brings on three friends, you'll get another share. Awesome. Right. I, I didn't know that was the rule, but <laughs> if, if it is three friends, then yeah, All it's right. the rule. this is really a pyramid scheme that often turns into podcasts about everything except for what we're here for. Uh, if, if, if ICP comes up during this podcast, oh, yeah. it's come up in every other podcast so really? far. Yes. Ep- every That's other episode awesome. so far. So full circle. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to try to keep it out, but I guess I just brought them back. <laughs> so, well, before we get into anything, then I will ask, what is your favorite ICP song? Oh, man. I, obviously, I'm not a fan. Okay. There is some songs and I can't name the exact tune, but I think the chorus was, please don't hate me. I've been fucking your mom loose lately. <laughs> Please don't hate me. I promised I would be a juggalo, and I remember a mutual like my best friend's brother was an actual like into that culture and okay. with the face paint, and um, he's like one of the first people that introduced me to a lot of different things. His okay. older brother. And, I don't want to know what else he introduced you to. It's, it I sounds kind of scary. Uh, well, I mean, you know, other like recreational drugs for oh, sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't trying to go that direction. I was making a joke without knowing what I was talking about. <laughs> I thought it was just a lot of really bad music is what you're trying to get right. at. Right. But yeah, I agree. Bad music. But I've always, I've been intrigued by their culture. I've watched their documentaries and I've looked at like their you know, the the annual festival that they have and the gathering. I'm gonna be honest, it's like watching a car wreck. <laughs> you can't like take your eyes away from it. It's that it's kind of like that. So well, our goals for 2022 are to broadcast live from the gathering. Oh, wow. Yeah. That would be amazing. Well, the thing is that you, you brought up the culture and as much as we joke about ICP, that's kind of how it started as a topic on this, this podcast is building community mm-hmm. and having a bunch of misfits with some things in common who find what they're looking for and, and find that community and that, that, that love, I guess I'll say, or, or hate. I don't, <laughs> in that community, I'm not really sure what it is, but it's, it's some all ex- love, fam. It's all love. It, it's some extra, <laughs> it's some Fago and some extreme emotion right. and bad music. And I do and not. And maybe a little bit of being mad at your parents. Yeah. Well, I'm sure a lot of that. <laughs> and it's something that I've never listened to. I have not watched this documentary. We will link to it on one of our pages. Uh, so you can, so the listeners can can watch this, and I'll I'll watch it as well. But uh, you mentioned some recreational drugs, Bill, yeah. and just wanted to kind of start the conversation uh, with you telling us why why you're here today. Well, you invited me, which thank you both for <laughs> inviting start. me. Absolutely, um, thanks for coming, man. Really appreciate. Uh, it. No, I'm I'm really happy to be here, and 
it's been a long road getting to, you know, sitting into this seat right now. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of time spent, you know, regretting, you know, what happened yesterday and being in absolute fear of what's going to happen tomorrow. I could never spend a lot of my life just living in the moment mm-hmm. in today. And that's what I do today is I'm living in the moment okay. and everything that's gotten to me this point is the reason why I'm here. Okay. Um, so not much regrets about my life. Obviously mm-hmm. I've made a hell of a lot of mistakes, you know, just like anybody else. But, uh, I, I've definitely been through my share, uh, of struggles getting, mm-hmm. getting to this chair, you know, okay. right now. And it's not really as a struggle today okay. as it used to be. That, that's great to hear. And you mentioned a friend or a friend of a friend, uh, your, your juggalo friend who yeah. introduced you to a lot of things that may not have been the best for you in your life. Yeah. And the bill I know, I, I guess there's a lot of your life. I don't know. Sure. We, we've known each other for a long time and I know that you've been in the program, uh, for at least several years. How long has it been? So, uh, in terms of years, it's been seven and a half years. Okay. But when anyone asks me, like when I go, I go to rehab centers to help guys and okay. it gets asked of me all the time and I refuse to tell them. I tell them really what it is, the truth. And I've been sober since 430 this morning. Okay. So the reason why I say that is because all that matters is today. Okay. Um, I've had friends that had 15 years of sobriety and, you know, drank. Mm-hmm. I've had friends that had 20 years of sobriety and drank. So it's important that I'm doing and living my best life today rather than being reliant upon past accomplishments okay. and everything like that. So, yeah, I'm a recovered alcoholic drug addict. Um, okay. I've got seven and a half years in a row. But honestly, you know, the, the only thing that matters right now is I've been sober since... You know, four thirty this morning. Four thirty. Did you get up at four thirty this morning? Yeah, I'm that, a I'm an early bird, guys. Wow, that's not an early bird. I, I've got <laughs> words for it, and and I, I, I they're not very nice words. I think four thirty. What the fuck, man? Yeah, <laughs> and it's weird. And you know, I work remotely as you guys both do, and uh, I would think that maybe that would have changed my schedule up. But I've always been since I was a little little boy. You know, I was always up early. Watching the old shows, I probably watched the entire okay. season, entire series of different strokes by waking up at you know four thirty in the morning. Same with like Gomer Pyle and right. all those, you know. G- Gomer Pyle. Okay. Uh, well, that's great to hear that you're up and at it every day. I mean, I'm sure yeah. that that's something that you probably weren't doing back when you were having problems with alcohol and yeah. substances. Can you tell us a little bit how you started to recognize that? you were having trouble and needed to reach out or get help? Yeah. So that was a a long time ago as well. Mm -hmm. So I first got introduced to like the 12 step programs when I was 21 years old. Um, My first trip to rehab was in 2005. Oh wow. So I'm going to be 38 next month. So um, I started recognizing at an pretty relatively early age that there was a problem. Okay. So my older sister had also recognized this through, I have also an older brother who's been, you know, probably qualifies to be in a 12 step fellowship in and out of, you know, prison, you know, homeless for the last 25 years. So I grew up my entire life watching him absolutely get his life destroyed, you know, visiting him in homeless shelters, 
visited him in park benches, um, Salvation Armies. At a point, he was living in a shed with vagrant kids that were treating him like a like a pet dog, you know. And um, I loved him to death. And at 12 years old, my mom asked me, like, are you going to ever drink and use drugs? Mm-hmm. And at 12 years old, I was honest and I said, absolutely not. I'm never going to drink and use drugs because I didn't want what was happening to my brother happening to me. Okay. So at the age of 12, I made that commitment and that commitment lasted till I was about 16 years old. <laughs> okay. And when I was 16 years old, I was not happy with my life. Okay. Um, I was thinking about killing myself. Um, I was, didn't have many friends, um, wasn't doing well in school. I was really uh, upset with my family life. Um, you could, I definitely believe I grew up in a dysfunctional family. Okay. Um, and at the age of 16, you know, curiosity, I guess, killed the cat, so to say. And mm-hmm. um, all that stuff and all those promises that I saw happen, you know, early on what my brother did, I, um, you know, I was a, I pushed that to the side because I wanted to see what this was all about. Okay. You know, dare all those just say no to drug campaign that I grew up in the 80s and 90s. You know, it had an effect on me up until I was... 16, I was like, screw it. And, you know, I smoked weed out of a little crushed pop can with the next door neighbor kid. Okay. Um, had, you know, some, it was called Ice 101. I don't even think it's available. It's like peppermint schnapps. And when I drank it, you know, it tasted like shit and uh-huh. the alcohol tasted bad. Mm-hmm. But when I got past that stage and I felt the effects, you know, it, bl- it blew me out of the water. It was a, like a psychic change for me at that moment where, Roughly 75% of the world is addicted or, you know, alcoholic 75 mm-hmm. or, you know, 15%, I should say. So, oh, okay. yeah. So 15% of the world is, you know, alcoholic drug addicts. So with me, alcohol and drugs did something to me that's abnormally different than most people okay. out there. Um, but for me, the more that I ever drank or did drugs, the more in control that I felt. In control? Yeah. The more that I drank, the more in control that I felt. The more that I drank, the better that I felt. So it was really the solution always to my problems. It was never, drugs and alcohol was never my problem. It was always my solution. Ever since when I was 16 years old, that day when I was, you know, eating a brownie, laughing my ass off on my friend Eric's, you know, floor, you know. And so, but when I was 16 years old, at that moment when I felt the effects, I'm like, well... I'm not going to like end up in jail like my brother. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen to me. Right, you're 16. I'm 16. Not even a year later, not only did it up in jail, I ended up in jail with my brother. <laughs> Literally in the same unit on a, he had a separate, you know, case and, you know, we're passing the phone back and forth talking to our mom. Can you imagine wow. you know, how she felt both of her sons in jail at the right. same time? Right. So and at that moment Forgive me for laughing. Sure. It's, it's, no, it's it is it is ironic, and I get a laugh every time I share that because <laughs> it's the irony is just so. And at that moment, it still didn't dawn on me that maybe I was it was going to get worse. And at that right. moment, and I felt it, it wasn't still my problem. It was my parents. I need to get out of my parents' home. It's a chaotic lifestyle. Um, my my friends around here are, are are the ones that are bad influences on me. If I move in with my older sister, who is like 16 years older than me, who's probably the black sheep of our family. She's lives on North Shore, you know, 
nice husband, nice, you know, there was a lot of things going good for her where if I moved into a calming environment, everything would get better. And when I moved in with her, it didn't get better. Mm -hmm. And by the time I was 21, I'm heading into my first detox. I never in a million years thought that would ever happen. Right. Mm -hmm. So I was introduced to the 12 step fellowship when I was 21 years old and when I was in this rehab center, I was in rehab for like three, three months and I got introduced to a lot of people that were in AA and when they would come into, when they would come into our unit, I look at them and I had to ask them like, you guys are drug addicts and alcoholics. Like they didn't look like it outwardly. And right. when you grew up and you watch TV and you see all the, all that, you know, what an alcoholic and drug addict is supposed to look like, you think something in your head and they didn't look like it, but right. they talked like me. I can identify with what they said. And at that moment, I still wasn't ready to get sober. Um, I was 21 years old. I was just barely a month old of legal drinking age. Mm -hmm. Right. But there was a seed that was planted with me at that point. So from, from that stage, I, I learned a lot about what it meant to be an alcoholic, what it meant to be a drug addict. Um, I was, you know, I met a lot of great people. And for a year, I had a, a year of sobriety at that point. I went to a three-month rehab center. Okay. I went to a three-month halfway house immediately after that. And immediately after that, I went to a six-month uh, recovery home. And, you know, I learned a lot about myself with the dopamines, how that affects your brain, like, you know, call, phone, phone people. Like, I learned a lot of informational pieces, mm -hmm. but I wasn't really working on anything about me in the steps. Like I had a, a guy that I called a sponsor, but I wasn't truthfully in what we call like a first step experience where I was desperate enough to change or I was really emitting defeat against, you know, alcohol and drugs. So within that year span, I managed to get a job that was taking me to another part of the country. I managed to get a girlfriend um, I managed to get a, you know, a bank account, a nice car. I had my own place to live. Uh, I had a lot of like my, like they say ducks in a row. Right. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of good things externally happening, but there was still an itch in the back of my head that missed what alcohol and drugs did for me because so, nothing did. So you weren't drinking that whole time after you were out yeah. of the halfway house? Yeah. I wasn't drinking at all. It was completely dry. Um, until... <laughs> Until um, I was at Midway Airport, um, my girlfriend dropped me off. We just got into, she was crying. Um, the distance was affecting her. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, I was by myself in Midway Airport. And I just passed this, you know, play this um, TGA Fridays or some, something. And it was like Jack Daniels was just blinking. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, I wasn't like a big, you know, whiskey drinker. Um, I was mostly into like doing cocaine and at that beforehand when I was, you know, before I got sober, okay. but for a moment, I'm like, man, a Jack and Coke would be great right now. And it was just like that. Yeah. And next thing you know, I'm sitting at that bar stool at this TGI Fridays and all I had every reason in the world not to, you know, screw, drink. I had every reason in the world not to screw up. And I've gone through all these treatment centers and everything and all this informational stuff completely out the window. And next thing you know, there's Jack and Coke, you know, in front of me. And so, Bill, how easy or hard was it to make the decision or was it even a decision? It wasn't. Okay. So, and I didn't know it at the time, but mm. 
for alcoholics and drug addicts, a lot of people think they have a choice of whether they drink or not. Mm -hmm. But in reality, the definition of a real alcoholic and drug addict is they don't have a choice of whether they drink or not. The choice is usually already already made for them. Mm -hmm. So there is their actions predetermined to getting to that point for sure. Resentment, um, not getting taken care of, being dishonest, uh, living a life that is not in, in line with how the twelve steps have have outlined for me. Okay, but up until that point, the alcoholic has really lost the power of choice of whether they drink or not drink. It's even before it comes in. So. It was. It just took that one little thought, and then I drank that that Jack and Coke, and within a few months, the girlfriend was gone, the car was gone, the job was gone, bank account was you know in rears, and it was all, and that and that was all she wrote in a matter of a couple months. After a year or so, wow! In a couple months, it was gone, and it was like I not didn't even like stop. When you were in the airport drinking that Jack and Coke. What were you thinking? Nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to find out. Nobody's here. And I ordered a few more on the plane, mm -hmm. looking down at the skylines of Chicago. And it's literally ironic. I'm like looking down, I'm like nobody's going to know. And looking back now, saying nobody's going to know, I effectively became nobody too. Wow. So nobody knows except me. So I don't equal to anybody. You didn't count. I didn't count. So. Wow, Bill. <laughs> yeah. That's. I will jump in here and yeah. say that one of the things that I look back at in my life and the situation that I ended up with and with my wife was that I didn't matter. If I'd ever thought about myself, I couldn't have been in that situation for you know, married for 15 years with her for 18 years. So that speaks really, really, really heavily to me when you say that you kind of just erased yourself, that you didn't matter or you didn't count. And it was a subconscious thing. It wasn't, but yeah. looking back and evaluating, I'm like, man, I just became nobody. Right. I can't think of a time in my life where I had ever uttered the words or thought the words or decided that eh, nobody's going to know where that actually turned out better. Yeah. Like in general, now that, now that I'm in my forties, I think I understand that like whatever I'm doing, if it's a thing that I think I have to hide, then it's probably not yeah. worth doing at the moment. So that night you fly out of Chicago, you order a few more on the plane when you wake up the next morning or when you get off the plane or is there a point where you think I shouldn't have done that or I shouldn't be doing this? There, there is that because when I woke up, I'm sober, mm -hmm. I'm hungover, and I'm feeling a sense of guilt. But once there's a two part mm -hmm. thing when it comes to alcoholics and, you know, it's that first thought that happens prior to the chemical going into your system, mm -hmm. then what happens when that chemical goes into your system, we refer to it as like an allergy, like an abnormal reaction. Mm -hmm. So when that abnormal reaction happens, there's very little that stops that. Sometimes, you know, going to jail will make that stop. 
sometimes my wallet will make it stop. You know, a rare occasion I wake up in like Elburn, Illinois, and I don't know anybody that, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> I don't know where I'm at or how to scam anyone. That, and then sometimes my body physically, you know, our bodies physically cannot take any more alcohol and drugs that will make me stop. Mm-hmm. The one thing that says stop a thousand times, but I can't stay stopped on it alone is my brain. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm like, man, this has got to stop. I'll stop tomorrow. And then when tomorrow comes, I'll stop tomorrow. Right. Uh, I'll, I'll hold off. And when I have to go back to you know, hanging out with, with the family and I'll, I'll stop before Thanksgiving. And it's just, it starts like that. And it, well, and Bill, I think we can and, all relate to that. And I'm sure there's a lot of judgment that, that comes in your direction or maybe not now because you've been successful for as long as you have, but there's such a stigma with drug addiction and alcoholism and we, but we all do that. Yeah. I'm going to work out tomorrow, Bill. Yeah. I, swear, I, I'm t- I swear, man, I am going to work out tomorrow. Probably not going to eat McDonald's tomorrow and mm-hmm. ever again. Absolutely. But we all do it. And it just so happens that your addictions have much greater repercussions, not just for you, but for your family and, and even probably people you don't know. And And I'm going to ask you a question you said waking up in Elburn or some community and not knowing anyone and not knowing how to scam or not having a scam. Was scamming people part of your MO? Yeah. And it, it could happen in a lot of forms. You know, sometimes I would uh, be, be mean and, you know, dis, you know, angry to get what I need or I'll be the kindest guy in the world. Whatever, whatever the story had to be, I'm going to be that person because... You guys both have favorite actors, right? Of course. What's your favorite actor, Dan? Um, I, uh, uh, yeah, uh, I could, I could, I could picture him. De Niro. De Niro's great. Okay, we'll go with De Niro for the moment. That's a good one. How about you, Scott? I don't watch movies. Oh, so that's right. <laughs> let I forgot me say, about that. Let me say, um, Mia Khalifa. <laughs> <laughs> Good, good Great example. Choice. Great choice. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, you know, De Niro is a good is, is a good example for me. It's Daniel Day Lewis. Okay. So Daniel Day Lewis, you've all watched him in some movie, Last of the Mohicans. Um, he's that guy that played the left foot and like literally had to paint, you know, with one one leg. And he was played Abraham Lincoln, and he played. You know the Bill the Butcher in Gangs in New York. Okay, whatever the role is, he he has to be that character. He is that character throughout the whole movie. Even when outtakes, right. he's like a method actor. Right. Guess who else is a great actor? Bill. Bill. So I became an excellent, excellent actor. I could be very disingenuous, be very deceitful. I could, and a part of being a good actor is you got to believe it in your head. Mm-hmm. So. Lying to myself was a big part of it and believing my own lies and the stories that you have to have behind it. And yeah, it was a big part of, um, you know, and the people that I scammed and you mentioned it was, you know, people that were closest to me. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that's what alcohol and drug addiction is. It engulfs everybody else. I don't know how to ask this question, and this might not even be a question that you can answer, but. 
like how do people how long does it take to, for people to start realizing that that's what you're doing to them it depends on the the person so there's a lot of you know the my family members you know they love me you know they they were there for me um they they want to believe my lies mm-hmm. enough to because they want to see me do well there would be so many times when I would raise up their confidence that, oh, maybe he's going to get it this time. And this was the worst thing I was doing to my, my family and my friends is that I would get well for a little bit. I'd raise their confidence up. And the next thing you know, I'm ripping the carpet from underneath their feet. And I would raise their confidence up. And it took, you know, at to a point where, like, my sister, who was, like, one of the most closest people to me in my life, she had to see actions of me. And my she she I couldn't really speak to her or her or my her children my niece and nephew for three years mm-hmm. I couldn't wow. see them in person for three years because she knew what I was saying but she needed to see my actions mm-hmm. so and that was after you lived with her for a number of yeah, years right after I lived with her for a number of years and when I did get sober so I literally had gone through three years of sobriety and having to kind of show her actions that I'm actually doing well before. She was going to actually really trust me again uh, with a lot of things. So, um, and she, in the past, she did, you know, she, you know, trust me in her home, you know, watch her children, um, all things that I, you know, definitely took her for granted and, and things that she had to take away from me and she had to protect herself. And I don't blame her, you know. Sure. You mentioned cocaine earlier. Yep. We focused a lot on alcohol. How did you end up trying and becoming addicted to cocaine? Yeah, it comes back to our juggalo friend. Uh, I suspected as much. It so, always does, man. <laughs> my, my my best friend who I grew up with, mm-hmm. um, he was a, he, his house was a place where we could safely do drugs. We could smoke weed and drink. Um, his father didn't care. Okay. And he had an older brother that was a couple years older than us and he he was always like into, you know, smoking weed and we're just sitting there one day and this is early 2000s. I think we we're playing GameCube or something, smoking <laughs> weed and he's like, "Hey guys, you want to try something?" And we're like, "What?" And he brought in cocaine. Mm-hmm. And me and Matt are like looking at and like nervous and you know and when someone introduces cocaine to you you're immediately going back to dare whether it's either conscious or subconscious <laughs> and you're thinking about you know every cartoon character in the world telling you not to do it that you know it still since, happens to me and yeah and 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 still we were like okay we'll try it and when we first tried you know it was nervous but then just like when i first tried weed when i first tried alcohol that nervousness disappeared and it was like whoa so was it you or your friend who kind of decided first, or do you think you both came to the... We both came to that kind of like, what do you think? <laughs> what do you think? And we're like, whatever, well, let's try it. So when you try tried cocaine or tried any new drug, mm-hmm. was it more or less immediate that this shit had you? I would say so. So one drug I will say that didn't have me was hallucinogens. So um, like mushrooms, acid, every time I took that stuff, if those were the only drugs available on the planet, I might not be a drug addict because every time I took it, I thought I died. 
Like every time I took it, I I literally thought I was dying. Like I de- I was dead, and I okay. freaked out, and it never worked. It was never something that worked out. So for every me. time, how many times did you have to learn this this lesson before oh, you quit? Four or five, you know, maybe okay. half a dozen. <laughs> so, but was it hard? I mean, was it that just there was a drug there, so you wanted it? Yeah, I was. Whatever could get me out of right here, right now, I'm. I'm I'm cool with. Mm-hmm. Now I never um I never did heroin. I was just never around it. Um but I've done everything else. So I can't help but know is that the only reason you think Yeah, you I think so. It? I think so. Um I I'm not originally from the Chicago area. Mm-hmm. It wasn't something that was super big in the community I'm from. Um but I now I've done you know, the, I've done, you know, opiates, like I've done Oxycontin, mm-hmm. um, which is syn- basically synthetic, you know, heroin. Sure. Um, but I've never um, shot, intravenously shot a drug into my vein. Okay. So it, it's basically dumb luck that you haven't done that. Yeah, it's, it's not, pretty it, much. It's not that like that was a hard line for you. And most of my friends have okay. that I know that are in, you know, in the program. Most people that I've met and most people that I've helped actually... Or we're we're addicted to heroin. Do you have an opinion on like what the is there a worst drug? Yeah, it's it's a hard hard one to say. The most dangerous one, if you were asked my opinion, is alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the one drug that you can actually die from detox off of it. So um, I'm not saying you can't die from it. It's just very rare to die from detoxing from cocaine. It's really rare to die from de- And you're not going to die from detox from heroin. It's very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of pains in it, but you're not going to die from it. But alcohol, you can definitely die from um from that and it's another thing about it it's very it can impair your judgment rapidly you know uh depending on body weight and everything like that alcohol and then it's legal in most areas of the world it's it's one of the i would say alcohol is probably the worst and cigarettes too man that's not really labeled under what we're speaking about but dude cigarettes are just a waste yeah. Like, <laughs> it really is. <laughs> I spent so much money on cigarettes, and honestly, what a waste. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't even enjoy it. I just enjoyed thinking I was cool. Well, you weren't, and you're still not. I know it. But we can we can find something to make you cool. <laughs> telling, telling people you have a podcast is definitely the way to make them think you're cool. I mean, just go out on the street, Dan. I'm going to get myself a little picket sign and walk around and meet some people. I have a podcast. I know, Dan, you're one of the coolest guys I've ever met. Oh, we've got rules against that, Bill. Sorry. No positive words towards producer Dan during the show. Yeah, you're really cool too, Scott. Well, I, I thank you. I know that I am, but but producer, He's the host. producer yeah. Dan works a little bit harder if you just kind of withhold that approval. <laughs> but his his voice is soothing, you know. Well, what about mine? I'm glad you think so. Thank you. He he does have a nice voice. He uh, at times is a little. Uh, he, he talks <laughs> like no. I'm going to say something nice. I mean, we've already it's it's already too late. <laughs> but he sometimes talks like he's not a very good talker. And then he comes on here, and I don't hear the filler words. I don't hear the ums and the uhs. I'm over here like an asshole, like, uh, 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 b- uh Bill. Right. And you don't hear those because I do the editing, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> oh, trust me. I'm listening for them right now. And I hear them when they come out of my mouth. But you've talked about detox 
and you just said that alcohol detox can kill you. What was it like when you detoxed? It, it, it was uh, obviously very uncomfortable. Uh, it was it was scary. Okay. Um, and where were you? I, I was at, I was in a detox center. Okay. I uh, was on the north side uh, of the city, and it, it was um, very uncomfortable. Um, I, I wouldn't say I was about to die or anything like that, but in my brain, you know, you, obviously the chemicals of alcohol and drugs can kill us, mm-hmm. but um, we um, we die a lot mostly because of our mental state and where we're at. I can't tell you how many guys I've met that died sober because they killed themselves. So okay. the thoughts of like killing myself were there really strongly during detox and for a couple months, even while I was initially like the, like through the sobriety time working the steps, because as I mentioned, alcohol and drugs was always my solution. And when you take that solution away mm-hmm. and I don't have that re- like replacement, you know, right there and then, cause you don't get that replacement instantaneously. Well, some people have, it's called like a, a spiritual experience, which is rare, like out of the blue, mm-hmm. you know, I had to go through a lot of processes to get to that point where I was mentally okay. And man, I'll tell you the, the day before I uh, got sober, it was like the worst day of my life. Mm-hmm. It was the worst, worst day of my life. And it had to, it had to have been the worst day of my life if it was going to work. If it was going to be like great and it was going to be, everything was cool. I, I probably would still be out there, you know, you know, drinking. So this is right. rock bottom, rock bottom. Um, really, really at a, the lowest part uh, of my life. And there's a few parts in my childhood that I could equate to my feelings back then. But okay. at this point it was, you know, really low mentality. So are you saying that for most addicts or for you that rock bottom is a very real thing that you had to hit before it was time. I I would say so. And there's a lot of people that have different types of bottoms. So a lot of people associate, Oh, if I go to prison, that's going to be where I end. Or if I get five DUIs, it doesn't have to be like that. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a feeling inside. And with me, I was absolutely desperate. So this time around the 12 steps was the last house on the block for me. It was either that was going to work or, I was just going to go on to the bitter end and just, you know, die. So this was really at a point where I was desperate enough for some change in my life. Was it your choice to go? Yeah, I, I made that decision um, to go. And I think that's a big part of it. You can't really force anyone to go. I don't think tactics of, you know, interventions can work. You know, it can get someone to a point. But ultimately, if the person has no desire to stop it's it's really pointless trying to convince them to do something that they're it, it won't work. So, but for me, it was a point where, you know, there was some pushing because of you know some people around me. But I, I, I had an honest desire for for something to change. So, how long were you feeling that desire? Was it did it just kind of come on, or was it in the back of your head for a long time, or, or forever even? So. So back when I first got introduced to the 12 steps, I've obviously met people in rehab and stuff. And um, I actually met my sponsor today. We were both patients in the same rehab in 2005. So I saw him literally come in day one before he did any. He had track marks up and down his arm from shooting heroin. And I saw 
over the course of the year that we got to know each other and became really great friends, like really close, great friends. I saw his life change, Mm -hmm. like literally really change, not the bullshit that I was doing about getting a job. Like I saw him making a difference in his life. And I was like, man, if I'm ever really serious about it, I'm going to go ask that guy for help. And sure shit, seven years later, I, um, I reached out to him and asked for help. And, and I'm a believer in God. And this is how I believe it in my life that, you know, he, at that point he was living in Chicago. He had a place that helps guys like me. And I was living in, living in the city at that point. And it just was meant to be. And I reached out to him for help. And Bill, I, I mean, that gave me goosebumps. It really did. The idea that there was something there and for all of those years, even though I, I don't know if you had contact with him over yeah. those years or anything. It was the one benefit of Facebook. So okay. growing up for us, I mean, a little bit of me, there was not much cell phone use. So right. you'd go out, maybe use a house phone. There wasn't a maybe there was AOL chat or Yahoo uh-huh. chat and stuff like that. So I just got into Facebook and I didn't have his number per se, but I, we were friends on, on Facebook and every now and then he would reach out to me and be like, Hey, how you doing? What's going on? And I tell him, Oh, I'm, I'm good. You know, I, you know, I all obviously reference how we met and be like, Oh, I, you know, I think I really panicked back, back in 2005. I think I overreacted. I don't feel I'm an alcoholic. And he's like, okay. And he was very non judgmental. Right. You know, did he, did he know though? Did, do you think? Oh, I, he, I mean, I think in the back of his head. So us being an AA, we're not, it's not our business to like qualify it, like identify, make people, you know, or diagnose them ourselves. So there's very little point in doing that, but you know, us in the circumstances that we met, he definitely wasn't surprised when I called him when I asked for help. He's like, man, and he's from another country, and he's like, man, I've been praying for you to one day call call me, and that's what he said. That's cool. Now I'm 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 trying to, because I know you from work. Yeah. Um, we met, and you know, we've been we've been acquaintances for ten years. Mm-hmm. We met at work. We we sat not far from each other. We probably had yeah. lunch together once or twice a month. Yeah. Um, we've been social a couple times and that was a little over 10 years ago yeah um and i think if i remember the timeline correctly when i left that job you got sober after i left i, I believe so i think that's 2014 correct. yeah so it was right around the same time so we know, were still in the old office yep the bill i know um that i have the strongest memories of like is right about this time yeah which is very interesting and i'm putting those puzzle pieces together because you didn't seem i mean you made some questionable judgment calls on occasion Mm -hmm. but you did not seem to be a person that was a mess to me yeah and i'll say that i i did not know that either um i can't i mean it was a long time ago and it goes back to what i was just talking to you guys about who's your favorite actor right so obviously when i'm at work I had to really put on a show, um, you know, family members that I work for and everything like that. Um, there's a couple people that experienced, you know, at work experienced my drinking and, you know, disappearing. And I can't tell you how many times I was blacking out towards those last, you know, couple years of my drinking. Really? Um, I was just reading the paper. Some guy went missing in River North. Um, yeah. $150,000 raised for this kid already in a matter of a week. I mean, 
I can't tell you how many times I did that. And that probably was like, it could, it could have been the first time that's ever happened to him. Right. And the first time he blacks out, he's absolutely disappeared. And I, I, countless times, blacking out, walking into, you know, bars, not remembering, losing stuff, right. waking up where I, yeah. Yeah, it was, um, it, towards the end, it was really bad. But I, I used to romantically call that time traveling, <laughs> <laughs> which it turns out is rather dangerous. Yeah, it was. Um, I was living in uh, Wicker Park mm-hmm. towards the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a ton of bars. Yeah, real easy neighborhood to stumble around. In. It was like I woke up in a dream when I first moved there. It was ugh, I'm like, yeah, I've arrived. This is it. <laughs> Literally, you know, I was living in in the burbs at the point. And right. When I moved here, I'm like, man. And, and that was from like your mid twenties. Every mid mid twenties, and every bar from Damon to Ashland, I was kicked out of. And wow. every time I would walk in there, I'd get a glare from the security guard, and they'd be like, "Listen, you can have one, and that's it." And like I'd get, I'd get like there would be a security guy from the four a.m. bar that was around the block from me, and he would see me like, you know, "Hey, Bill, <laughs> you doing okay today?" <laughs> One day I was limping because <laughs> I fell down their stairs, and I don't even remember that. So it was, yeah, blinking out was a big part of my story. It doesn't necessarily qualify as someone, just because you black out doesn't make you an alcoholic. But right. um, it was a big part of what was happening to me towards the end. Right. Do you look at the culture of drinking? I mean, in this city, it's it's pretty bad in this city. I have, you're you are correct, but I have very mixed emotions about it personally. When you say culture, what do you mean? The amount that people drink—the Friday night, Saturday night, Thursday night—we're going out and getting wasted. Sure. Uh, the St. Patrick's Day, oh shit, that's going to be an entire day of getting wasted. Yeah. And I'm with you when I think that, when you say that alcohol is one of the most dangerous drugs out there, I absolutely agree. But I like it. And I do it. I do it sometimes irresponsibly. Mm-hmm. I woke up in my garage recently. That was a <laughs> fucked up experience. Yeah. And it sounds like one that you have had before i'm glad it wasn't my garage you woke up in but i've just always i've never really approved as much as i do it i look at the culture of drinking and it's like man this ain't right i until recently i have almost 100 percent totally approved and i worked you know after we worked together i worked in, in in breweries and worked in the beer industry and now i'm I, I hesitate to use the word sober, but I have not drank for four months. It, next okay. week will be four months. Oh, awesome. Um, yeah, it's 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 great. It is awesome. I I spent a lot of time listening and learning about the twelve steps. I never I never went through the twelve steps. I yet I'm I'm, I'm not opposed to it. Um, it's strange for me because I don't I don't personally currently identify. It doesn't feel like I've earned the word sober. It just feels like I haven't drank and I have chosen not to drink, not to drink for the time being. Um, 
which is very interesting and it, 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 totally new to my life. I'm, I, I, you know, I spent 20 years, yeah, as a very regular drinker. Uh, so it's, you know, I'm learning how to be uh, coming out of the pandemic and not drinking and starting to be around people sometimes is very interesting, right? And I'm a lot less outgoing. I really have to stop and think about pushing myself to go talk to people I don't know when it's a whole lot easier for yeah. me <laughs> when I'm, I'm socially lubricated. Yeah. And that's the culture. Right. Oh, totally the culture. And do you think that the culture allows people to hide behind their alcoholism? I think some people can get lost into that. So... I'm not against the institution of drinking at all. Okay. If I was non-alcoholic, I definitely would have two beers. You know, I actually, I, I loved smoking weed. Like mm -hmm. if, if I could safely smoke marijuana, I would be doing it. Mm -hmm. But every time that I would smoke weed, it would take me on to, you know, the next thing that I really want. So, okay. um, so culturally, I'm not against it, but you can definitely hide in it. But the thing is, is that there's a lot of hard drinkers out there that are not alcoholic. There's a lot of people out there that use a lot of drugs. They're not drug addict. So the difference between those types of drinkers and myself is given sufficient reason, they can stop or moderate mm -hmm. like not on a non-spiritual basis. Like, like I had to, like sometimes a loss of job will tell someone, Hey, I've had enough. Or the wife threatens to like leave or you get a, notice that you're you know going to go to jail if you do this and that is a sufficient reason for people to stop sure. for me i've had all, i've never been married but i've had all those type of consequences and those all failed to keep me you know in check so but yeah binge drinking it's it's big but also if we were to just eliminate that what would do that do to that in the communities of you know people that rely on you know the bars and the restaurants and mm -hmm. and the advertising surrounding it so yeah it's a it's a good question you know uh obviously it's it's not safe to binge drink and you know the the thought and me personally i have a biased opinion like two drinks like how many people just have right. one one and a half or two but surprisingly there's people that are mm -hmm. my girlfriend we live together mm -hmm. I literally go to my fridge constantly and there's a half empty 12 ounce hard cider in there. And I'm like, hon, what is this? I almost knocked fridge. it over. And I'm like, what is this? And she's like, oh, I'm saving it for later or tomorrow. And I'm like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. The only time, the only, and that's why I'll know. And that's why I know I'm safe. My girlfriend will never be an alcoholic because the only time there was half empty you know, cans in front of me, you know, I'm leaned over sucking my own dick. You know, I'm just like, you know, literally like, you know, passed out. So there's people out there that literally get that tipsy out of control feeling where they get, they get that stop sign. For me, the more that I drink, the more in control that I feel. And it's always go when that stuff enters my system. And it's always more, the more I drink, the more in control that I feel. So obviously early on when there's 
young 20 year olds first experiencing alcohol for the first time and they're getting that experience and they get that feeling. Everyone gets that feeling. Everyone in the world can be addicted to opiates. Right. You take enough opiates, anyone can physically get addicted. It happened to a lot of guys in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. You know, people, a lot of guys came back from Vietnam addicted to heroin, but most of those guys were able to just go through detox and they were cool. They didn't need to go on 12 steps. Mm-hmm. They just had to eradicate that substance from them and they weren't going to it. There's something else that pulls an alcoholic to alcohol and drugs. And it's more than just what it does. It's just, it's that solution that I was talking to you about before. It's some, there's something that magically happens to me that I don't think alcohol and drugs was designed to do. Right. Bill, this is helpful in framing things for me because for a long time, when I look at the culture of, of drinking and binge drinking that we have, I do think, or I have thought in the past anyway, that Oh, we've got a lot more alcoholics than we really say, but it sounds like what you're saying is that it's that addiction, that draw, that inability to stop, and the consequences that it has on your life is really where that line is between this person just fucking drinks a lot and this person's an alcoholic. And I just know it in my own personal life. My next door neighbor was the exact same age as me. You know, he did the same amount of drugs drank the same amount, literally two months older than me. However, though, the big difference between him and I, he could stop on a dime. Right. It doesn't matter. He's like, oh, I can't do it for six months. I got to drop clean because I got this union gig. He can do that. For me, union gig, I'm trying not to go back to jail and lose my life, you know, and I can't stop because of that. So I I think it's all dependent upon the person. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's hard to say. There's a lot of Studies that say it's genetic predisposition, not necessarily if your parents were or somewhere down the line, you may have been born genetically of being predisposed to alcoholism. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just know I put myself in all these situations and I crossed that line and there was probably a point I definitely could have gone this, you know, one direction and another direction. And I definitely went in the, the direction of continuously drinking and right. and and feeling that solution of, of what that was given to me. Yeah. And, and I think that there's two, there seems to be two definitions of alcoholism floating around mm-hmm. and, you know, there's like the AA definition. And I've heard people that have been through the program that it's describe it exactly as you have. Mm-hmm. And by that definition, I think it's arguably, maybe I'm not an alcoholic, arguably. Um, and then there's the uh, definition that seems to be thrown away by, or thrown around by like the typical medical community where if you consume more than three drinks a night, yeah. you know, five times a week, then you are by definition an alcoholic. And that's a very, very, very different definition. Yeah. So AA's literature, the, there's a book called that's nicknamed the big book. Mm-hmm. So it's called, it's just called Alcoholics Anonymous. So that's where the fellowship got its name from. They were, they, they were trying to figure out what to call themselves, and they're like, well, let's just call ourselves after the book that we published. So that's where that came from. So there's a point where they use stories and they use examples where they want the reader to determine for themselves. There's never a place where it just point blank says, if you do this and this, you're an alcoholic. There's one part, though, that comes the closest, and it's a simple sentence. If you honestly want to and you find you can't not quit entirely, or if when drinking you have little control of the amount you take, you are probably 
alcoholic, and they use that term probably. So when that sentence was broken down to me, it was broken down as to two questions. He's like, Bill, when you honestly want to, do you find you cannot quit entirely? So he read that as a question, and I could say yes. Bill, when drinking, do you have little control of the amount you take? Yep. Well, Bill, you're probably alcoholic. So we talk a lot, you're, you're talking about Alcoholics Anonymous, and you've also talked about other addiction. Did you quit everything at the same time? Well, I didn't quit cigarettes, that's for sure. <laughs> um, and I didn't quit, uh, like, what, what we kind of list as selfish sex, I didn't quit that. So early on, I still had issues. Obviously, I was smoking cigarettes. Um, and I was really tackling dating websites, you know, finding women. And Uh what I mean by that, I'm going on websites, not reading their profile and I'm swiping right, just aimlessly swiping right until I'm getting a a hit or a match and I'm not, you know, interested in who they are. I'm just seeing who it is. And then, you know, food definitely became a replacement for a time where I'm, eating a lot of chocolates and sweets and at that point i don't recommend quitting everything immediately okay if you smoke and drink i wouldn't recommend quitting smoking and like drinking it's, okay like there's some harm reduction that can go along with that yeah i mean there it just I, can make it harder than it really necessarily yeah needs to it's, be. it's 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 inarguable that like eating extra chocolate is okay when you're no longer right. drinking to blacking out like that's <laughs> right. better than the absolutely other. it's night and day. And if you're doing more than one thing, trying to quit more than one thing at once, do you think that there's a higher probability that once you fail with one, you just fail with all of them? There's a lot of, I believe the same. I think that I've seen that happen a lot. So what hurts a lot of the new people that I come across with and people that I've met, it's my sponsor labels it like this pink and green, my friend. It's the number one thing that takes down new, new guys is, you know, women and 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 getting getting money so a lot of guys also go strongly <laughs> at getting money okay. they like go head first into you know into their work they try to like replace the thoughts with getting really 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 busy and that's a, also a recipe for disaster too so i'm not like that okay but it was a lot you know trying to chase women and i was able to recognize that early on you know thank goodness otherwise you know, I wouldn't be sitting here. So, but yeah, cigarettes, you know, I, it took a long time for me to get ready to quit that, Mm -hmm. but I've quit that too. So, which has been great. You've done well, Bill. And that's a fact. I have said more than once that probably not to your face, but I'm proud of you. We used to go to Cubs games and Bill would always have his phone on and answer every fucking call. And why was that? And new guys calling. Because this dude is part of this program. So does that is is that does that make you a sponsor or does that just make you someone who's available, successful and available for people? Yeah, it's sponsorship, but it's also just my fellow friends, you know that are, you know, reaching out, saying hi, or, you know, they they do ask for advice. And, you know, I'm also on the other end too. So a big part of what I do today is, is definitely helping, you know, new people through the door. It's something that, 
it's something I have to do, but it's something I, you know, enjoy doing too. Okay. When you say you have to do it, what's that mean? So step, so there's 12 steps, obviously, and step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics. And then the other part of that is also practice these principles in all my affairs. So not only do I have to be out there trying to help people through the 12 steps, I got to continue to do it too. So if I'm not doing it, I have no business helping people. But a big part of it is I have to keep giving it back. So my sponsor had only one ask of me when he took me through. He's like, Ted, one, one night a week you're going to be spending trying to find guys that are dying. All I ask is one night a week. I don't care how many these meetings you go to. I don't care about you, you know, making coffee. You can do all that stuff and set up chairs, but you got to be out there trying to find guys that are dying one night a week for the rest of your, your life as long as you're doing this. And and it was a pretty simple ask, you know, and it's become more than just one night, but it's, you know, that's what he said to me. And and what's that mean? Like, are you are you going to homeless camps looking? I go to a treatment center. Okay. So there's a treatment center that I go to in the city every uh, Friday evening, and uh, I go there and I kind of talk about our literature usually. Um, I try to help guys qualify them to see if they are actually alcoholic and drug addict. You'd be surprised. There's so many people that been to AA meetings and they don't even know what it means. Right. They don't even know what alcoholism is. So nine times out of ten, most guys don't even know what it is and they're identifying as an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And I'll ask, do you know what that means? And they'll say some stuff that they heard on TV or some other you know, schmuck said in some meeting somewhere. And um, So a big part of what I'm doing is it's mostly planting seeds and rarely finding a guy that actually wants to do this. So most guys don't. But a part of me going there is also helping me in, right. in a way. And yeah, like you said, planting seeds, letting people know that this is here yeah. when they're ready for it. Absolutely. I think that's really important. Yeah. And that's, all, that's all it is. And I, I don't go there as like forcing it upon them and, um, in non-judgmental way. And if, if there's some guys that are interested in doing it and if we get to a point and they say, I don't want to do this anymore, it's no problem. You right. know? It's, um, you're free to come and go as you please. And, but if this is going to work, there's certain things that you're going to have to do. So, well, from a mostly identified atheist, uh, yeah, I'd like I'd like to say that I mean, without a doubt, you're doing the Lord's work, and <laughs> sounds sounds like you're doing it in a pretty Christ-like manner. I and, try, and I appreciate that tremendously. Absolutely. And Bill, are there other ways without the program that you're familiar with that people use to successfully get sober? Not that I know about. I know there's other there's other fellowships out there, and I know some people have gone to like you know Scientology. Some people have used um, other techniques. There's 101 ways probably to get well. The only way that I could talk about though is what you know worked for me. So um, I also go there, and I'm not here being this is the only house on the block. You know, okay. there's, but I, I'm not one that's you know familiar with that worked and the effect that it worked for me. So when you see people in your personal life, so mm-hmm. not when you're out looking, but when it's someone who's close to you or maybe not even that close, but you you know, you interact mm-hmm. with, is there anything you do or you can do or, or recommend others do? It, it's hard. It's hard when they're close. So as I mentioned, my brother probably qualifies to be in AA and I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of guys in AA and working, trying to talk with him and 
it's the most difficult thing on the planet of doesn't even compare. So my neighbor definitely, I think, qualifies to be an AA. Constantly he's passed out on his front porch, Mm -hmm. going back and forth early in the morning to get drinks. I won't approach him with this because it's pretty close quarters. Mm -hmm. So if we were to get down and do the work, and most guys don't do this, then he's got to see me every day. And I don't right. want to do that to him, you know, right. and every time he's coming home, he's going to feel guilt about, you know, not doing this. And then who knows, maybe it gets really personal. And a lot of guys don't know about me personally, you know, for quite some time. They don't know how long, how many years I've been sober. They don't know where I live. Um, it's very autonomous up until a point where they get where they start to get a little understanding of who I, I am. It's about safety and it's also about, you know, kind of not exposing them too much to something that they don't know anything about yet. So, but when it's people that are close, I, I, I'll make an approach, but I won't necessarily, you know, say who I am right away, you know, Mm -hmm. um, not to necessarily scare them off and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, there, there's a couple people that I've met over the course and, um, I've talked to them. Um, but it's difficult when they're, when they're close quarters, you know, it's hard. It can be a conflict of interest for sure. Do you, when you do, you said that there's been a couple of people. Do you broach the topic with them, or do you see or feel that they're ready for the conversation? I try to see and feel if they're ready. So anytime I'm approaching anybody, sometimes I go on what they're called 12-step calls, and we don't talk about it right away. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll talk about anything under the sun, you know, music and, you know, sports or whatever they're into. And then we kind of slowly get into, hey, you know, how's your drinking been? It'll be simple like that, mm-hmm. you know, and if they do, like, I, I don't, I can't recall when someone actually approached me and asked me for help when they were actual friends, but mm-hmm. um, if they would, um, you know, I treat it like I would treat anything, any any other situation, you know, I'd, I'd first gauge, you know, how their drinking is, you know, literally, you know, is it, is it something that is necessarily out of control? Mm-hmm. Have they tried stopping on their own before? So there's been times when there's a part in the book that suggests people to drink. So they're like, if you're, you know, not completely sure of your alcoholism, step over in the nearest bar room and try control drinking. Mm-hmm. I don't recommend that to heroin addicts, guys. I don't <laughs> recommend, you know, you just step over in the nearest dope house and try, because you could die instantly from, you know, right. from that stuff. So yeah, it's, it's that's a, become increasingly yeah. dangerous. Fentanyl yeah. is almost all you You don't can need get to be a drug addict to die. Right. You know, alcohol is a little bit different. It's a, a slow killer in a, in a way. Right. Um, but are, yeah, are are most of the people that you work with? Do they have more than one addiction? Uh, I, I treat them kind of like the same. You know, I'll identify as an alcoholic and a drug addict, but mm-hmm. it's basically saying the same thing twice. Right. So, alcohol Alcoholics Anonymous, I know, works for people that identify as heroin as being their drug in need. I'll never use that term drug of choice because I didn't have a choice of whether I drink or not drink. So, okay. their drug in need, if it's Heroin, I know it works because it worked for my sponsor. If it's crack cocaine, it, whatever it is, it doesn't really, it's irrelevant. But I know people that are very cross addicted with gambling. There's a lot of gamblers that are in, in AA, okay. um, which is an entirely different type of being. It's a 12-step fellowship, but it's, it's a different type of triggering in terms of like when we speak about allergic reaction. Mm-hmm. Like, those t- like they used to come in our rehab. There was a Gamblers Anonymous would come up and they would share. And some of those guys couldn't even go to like Chuck E. Cheese. 
like watching the bells ring and stuff right. like and like I can't identify with that personally, but I can like relate to something like that. Sure. Like they can't even do stuff you know, stuff like that. For me, I can't, you know, even have like the smallest amount of alcohol, you know. Well, Bill, I will say that I've spent time with you yeah. around alcohol. Yeah. You've offered to buy me beers at baseball games. Yeah. Do you feel a draw when you're in those situations still? That's, that's a good question. So um, today I'm recovered. Mm-hmm. So I got up to, you know, I've definitely passed step 10 and I'm recovered. I don't think about drinking. I don't think about not drinking. Mm-hmm. So when I see alcohol, I see it as a substance, but it isn't like, it's like any other allergic reaction now. So anyone that's allergic to shellfish, obviously they wouldn't eat at red lobster, right? Anyone that's, you know, allergic to penicillin, they're going to be emphatically saying that when they go to the doctor, Hey, right. Do not give me that stuff. And for me, I've been brought to that same sanity mm-hmm. when it comes to this, like, Hey, it's for you, but it isn't for me. So of course I had to do some things to get to that point. I couldn't be around it, you know, right away. Sure. Um, I had to get to a point in the 12 steps where I'm recovered, but it's not like a draw to me anymore today. Do you remember when you realized that it wasn't a draw anymore? Yeah. So sometime after step, step five. Mm -hmm. So the fifth step is a part where I share, um, the nature of my wrongs with someone else and God's in that room as well. And, you know, I said a lot of things that I never thought I'd ever share with somebody, um, thought stuff that I would take to my grave and I actually shared it. And there was some thing that I was still holding on to at that point, And it was the anger to my, my father. So I had a, a murderous type of hatred for my dad. It was beyond, you know, I didn't want him to be a lot, you know, I, I had no intentions of him being in my life. Okay. So after I did my fifth step, there's a part in step six and seven. If you haven't the willing to do something, pray till it comes. And I was praying for it to come. And I'm like, I just want to get past this. I want to get past this, but I can't. It's like forcing yourself to move past something, an incredible amount of trauma. So at one point I'm on, I'm at, I'm at, I'm living in a sober living home and uh, the subject came up of a God on social media. And at this point, oh, I'm some expert now and I'm going to be talking about it. And at that moment, I had my first spiritual experience there. And in an instant, for whatever reason in the world, the hatred for my dad disappeared right there and then. Wow. And I can't explain it in any other form other than God of my understanding came into my life. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, I never thought of having a drink since. Ever since then, you know, I started, I had to go on and continue to the rest of the program. Sure. But ever since then, um, the thought of drinking hasn't returned. Right. And I'm not saying like I haven't had, you know, dreams before about drinking or dreams before about stuff like that. But there would be points early in sobriety when I'd be dreaming about doing drugs and I'd wake up and I'm like, man, that sucks. I wish I was, that was real right now in the rare occasions when I do have a dream, it's like, you know, during the dream, I'm like, Oh, how am I going to explain this to um, my girlfriend? How am I going to talk? It's like a complete panic. And when I wake up, I'm like, Oh, thank God that wasn't real. I was going to ask if it was a good dream or a a nightmare. Anytime it happens, it's a nightmare. And I'm like, I'm definitely more grateful than when that stuff 
you know, it's not real, you know. So. I have, like, many versions of that with cigarettes, though. Oh, really? Yeah, where I'll wake up and, like, I'll feel, like, so guilty in the dream. Yeah. Like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm smoking again. You, you said, you mentioned in Step 5 uh, telling people things that you never thought you'd tell them. And I am going to selfishly, maybe, it's my podcast, okay. talk about me for a second. Absolutely. And that the day after... I had met my wife's fiance and her boyfriend, players two and players three. I had a decision to make. And that decision was, was I going to stuff this down as deep as possible and feel shame? Because you feel a little shame when you come to this realization. And instead, I decided I'm telling the fucking world. And I, the first person I told was my HVAC guy. The, produ- <laughs> the producer Dan had recommended oh. to me. Nice. I was, I had left my car at the bar the night before, and maybe that's why he won't call me back now. <laughs> <laughs> player two, player two drove me over to pick up my car and as we are just kind of shooting the shit before we go separate directions I see standing outside the bar that we are at and he came over and said hi and I was like this was the first time I said to someone want to hear a fucked up story I had no idea that that's the first person you told me. <laughs> I swear to Christ, I've called him four times since then, and I can't get him to come to my house. And that's like, I've been working with that guy for years. <laughs> so wow. you fucking owe me a good age for that guy. <laughs> okay, okay. I'll find one for you. That can't be it. He probably doesn't have any idea that... You were the person that recommended me. He knows exactly who recommended you. (laughs) Oh, my God. But it really was. It it took thought. It was this crushing shame that was inside of me that this could happen to me. And I told that guy. And that was low stakes, right? I'll I'll, I'll apparently never see him again. He doesn't return calls anymore. Yeah, low stakes for you. (laughs) And then I went to the coffee shop that has become my home base, my home away from home, and said the same thing. And told everybody. And it's like, it's it's healing. Yeah. You don't have to run from it. You don't have to hide. You don't feel as much shame. You might still feel some shame. But it's okay. I think, man, a life, living a life not hiding from shame, a life without shame is is a big deal and one worth striving for. And that doesn't mean to live a shameless life such as, uh, I don't know, Trump. Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> don't, shame is good for you if you're doing shameful shit. Right. But if you're not doing shameful shit, first of all, you can strive to not do shameful shit and also strive to not be shamed yeah. by yep. things that certainly aren't your fault. Well, and you're... The way I just say it is be a decent fucking human being. 
That's, a, that's that means the same thing, right? And I use it a lot because players two and three have said to me like, "Oh, I'm so stupid," or "How did this happen to me?" And I, the first thing I'll say is, "If you're stupid, I'm stupid," and I don't think I'm <laughs> stupid, right? And I did this for 15 years of marriage and 18 years of a relationship, so. If you're if you feel stupid, then I'm the dumbest man in the room right now. But then I tell them that the reason we didn't identify what she was is because we're decent fucking humans. And when you're a decent fucking human, you kind of expect other people to behave in in this area that decent fucking humans do. And you never when behavior is so far outside of that, you're not looking for it. Right. You might know some things are wrong or things are weird, but you don't expect that. Yep. I, I mean, I think a, a lot of my main, one of my main fears was what other people thought of me. Mm-hmm. And I grew up with b- someone having ownership in my mind of them. And a lot of times it'd be fancied and everything like that. And what you did was... You know, I was, you know, shocked, but it was like, man, usually people don't do that. And more people need to do that when instead of keeping it inside and, you know, trying to hide it away, it's like the wrong thing to do. And it's what you tell anyone. If you're going through a problem, please let us know, you know, don't, don't be shy. And, but when someone actually does it, it takes them back because it doesn't happen so often. So yeah, you're so right. You got it. I commend you for doing that. Thank you. And Bill, you would have always been accepting of I shouldn't say always I mean I know addiction mm-hmm. messes with the way you react to things but I know you well enough to know you're a decent fucking human <laughs> and I think we all need to be more forgiving for our, to ourselves because mm-hmm. if either of you two comes to me with things I'm not going to judge I want you to come to me and I want to be able to be there but by nature, most of us humans don't want to ask for that help. Yeah, it's very humbling to ask for the help that you need. Absolutely. And I remember like when I texted everyone to say, I need you guys. Many people said that was the strongest thing they'd ever seen from me. Yeah. When it sure as fuck felt like the weakest thing that I'd ever done. I think that also speaks a lot to, you know, how our, how that voice inside of our heads tells us one thing when the reality of what other people are perceiving is usually so different. So, Bill, you reached out for help to a man that is your friend at this point, I believe. Yeah. I've heard you talk about him a lot. What did you say to him? Initially, hey, you want to get some coffee? <laughs> Break the ice, nice. No response. I need your help. Within 15 seconds, I'm getting a call. Okay, so you texted him. I, hey, I, it was Facebook, Facebook message. Nice. And when I said, when there was no response, I think, I don't know what, this is like a long time ago, so I don't know what the read version is. Right. He definitely did not. But I know now when I said, I need your help, it was like within like within that minute, I'm getting 
a call like, hey, what's up? How long did it take from, hey, want to get coffee to when you texted back, I need help? It it took like a good 10, 15, 20 minutes. Okay. So, you know, it took a while when he wasn't responding. And I was like, you know what, Bill, I, I need to cut the shit. Yeah. Um, I need to be straightforward. I need your help. And uh, and initially when I first reached out to him, I didn't. We got to a certain point and I, I relapsed. I drank. And then I didn't contact him again for a couple months. And then when it was really shit hit the fan i reached out i'm like okay i'm i'm fucking serious this time and um when i was serious that time i didn't look back and uh he 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 did so much for me uh he helped me move out of the place i was in when i moved into um his sober living home i couldn't afford the the initial fees he floated it for me awesome um and he doesn't do that for everybody uh because he can't you know it's just it doesn't work like that and he's like I think he knew that was for real this time, and uh, I owe that guy my life. Now, I mean, you can't pay him back. You, you could pay him back the rent, but you can't pay pay him back for your life. But right. clearly you're trying to pay it forward, right? Yeah, and that's all I'm doing. Now, let me ask you this. As someone who's been through the program, as someone who's reached out for help and then let people down probably repeatedly, yeah. right? What's it like when you start working with a new guy? And then they relapse. What's that do to you? And how do you, can you still help them after that? Yeah, it's, that's a good question. So early on when I first started doing it, uh, it, it hurts. Uh, I wasted a lot of time chasing guys down because uh, I was on fire initially when I first got, well, I'm like, I want to get out there and really plug away. And uh, realization that I, I just had to get used to people letting me down. Right. In terms of like failing me, I guess. And uh, it's just a, a par for the course. Uh, most guys that approach me for help uh, don't go through the process. Right. Um, I've got maybe five guys, five guys in, in a matter of, you know, seven years that actually followed through and did it all. Um, but one makes it all worth it. Right. And do you tell people no if you don't think they're serious or do you yes. always tell people yes and then let them fall off? Yeah. So the, I do have qualifications of myself. So we get to a point, um, there's a certain question that I'll ask them. And if they answer it a certain way, I won't, I will definitely say no right off the, off the bat. And it sounds like you want to keep that, that question a little private. Uh, so the, the, the question is, I, I, and you'll be surprised, and most normal people are shocked when I tell them that when I ask this, they're like, oh, that's, I'm like, hey, do you think you're ever going to drink again? And nine, like eight times out of 10, they'll say no. Sure. And I'll say, well, I guess you don't need my help. And they'll be like, well, what do you mean? So I'm, I'm like, let me repeat the question. I'm not saying whether you want to or not. I'm saying, do you think you're ever going to drink again? No, I'm never going to drink again. I'm like, I can't help you. You don't, you don't have a slightest clue on what you're suffering from when you say that. Right. And they're like, what do you mean? I, I need your help. I'm like, well, if you're never going to drink again, walk out of this rehab door. There's plenty of guys that are dying to get in here that know for certain they're going to drink or use again. Mm-hmm. So... Do you think you're ever going to drink again? And usually at that point, some guys will be like, well, I don't know. And I'll take that. I'll be like, okay, that's a half answer. The answer I really like and is, yeah, I'm going to. Right. Because they have a little bit of an understanding of what this is. Because if you're never going to drink again, why would you be here? Right. 
So that usually weeds a lot, a lot of guys um, at the beginning. But then you get at certain points, um, there, there's either a yes or no. Either you're in this or you're not. And some of them say yes, but then their actions don't follow and I don't hear from them again. Right. And then some guys, you know, end up calling me back and we get through the process. I've had a guy uh, mess up on, oh, well, not mess up. He he ended up going back to drinking three occasions. And on the fourth occasion, he got it. And uh, he's still well today. Uh, he ended up joining the Marines. He was like first in his class in his Marines. I got a text from him last week. So, awesome. Um, I, I, I don't usually deny people, you know, help. But if it gets to a point where, I'm not, you know, helping them or I'm chasing them around there. They're expecting me to be a banker or, you know, be someone that's a therapist. I'm not their therapy therapy guy. I tell them, like, listen, um, you need to um, either do this or you got to find someone else to help you. So I've, I've had to fire guys, I guess you could say, before. You mentioned therapy, and it's a common topic on this mm-hmm. show. And do... Most of the people who you come across have access to mental health resources. Is there a way to get that through the program or? So the people that I come across, yeah. So in the, most of the guys that I meet are in a rehab center. So they have counselors on staff and they are going through a lot of those types of therapeutical stuff. So there's a lot of opinions about what AA is and stuff. And I'm definitely under the opinion AA is not therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm definitely not a licensed therapist. So to get therapy, you need to, or practice therapy, you need to be a licensed therapist. And I'm certainly not. And I think therapy is really great. So I went to a lot of great therapists before. I went to a lot of great psychiatrists before. Um, and I, I'll, I've occasionally gone to therapy over the course of the last seven years. Um, I'm not like a regular go person, but... Um, you know, there, there's a lot of things that AA doesn't take care of in, in that regards that a therapist can. So I know a lot of people in the rehabs have access to that, but just like anything, human resources is the first thing to always get cut right. when we're talking about tax. It's the first thing to go. This rehab center I go to, it's state funded. It's it's literally a ghetto. It's the, the food's bad. Um because alcoholics, drug addicts were like the lepers of the 21st century. You know, no one wants to, like, touch us because, you know, we, we, we harm everything that we, we're around. You know, we engulf problems. So it's understandable why we're always the first thing to go. But it's in reality, it's anything that they want to treat. More bars, more guards and stuff like that. Right. So. And they can, right or wrong, and very obviously wrong, Addiction is something that's easy to blame the person for, right? Absolutely. And listen, I had my own self to blame and my actions. You know, I'm the one that put myself in this situation. I, it was a self-imposed crisis. Well, sure. However, though, I'm not a bad person. I haven't met a bad person in AA. They're just sick people trying to get well. So right. this is not about bad people getting good. It's sick people trying to get well. And that's what I think society just needs to look at it a right. little bit more closely. Well, that's why I said, I mean, you said you put yourself in those situations, but the the fact that you had an addiction. It's an ailment. It's it's a disease. Right. Uh, I didn't have a cho- choice of whether I drank or not drank. And right. There's situations in my life that have come up where I had to explain it to you know my own mother dealing with my brother and she's like, well he probably he, he let my brother in the home last like at the start of COVID to 
you know, help out around the house. My dad has Alzheimer's and okay. um, he let, yeah, it's okay. And he, she thought that bringing him in the home to help around the house would be a good idea. And mm-hmm. I'm like, that is not a good idea. You, he's my brother, but it's like that guy with the sign, you know, not to judge anyone with a sign, you know, asking, you know, you don't allow just any person of stranger just into your home. Right in their condition it's not safe for you it's not even safe for them and it was a big mistake um and you know there was an altercation with 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 my dad he my dad had to go to the hospital my 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 brother bashed a bottle over his head jesus uh, because of a, a confrontation that they had um and i know my brother isn't a bad guy he's just sick right He's, it wasn't his intention to become the person that he became. Mm-hmm. I didn't intend to become the person I became. And uh, just coming from that type of understanding, um, you know, or, you know, at least, you know, remotely having an identification of that, I think we need to treat it. It is a, a mental and, and, and a disease mm-hmm. in our country, and we need to continue to look at it like as such. How do people end up in this this facility that you visit many many different ways okay there's a lot of guys coming from cook county jail there's a lot of guys coming from lake county jail a lot of guys coming off the street um coming from different homeless shelters connected with the salvation army um they're coming from a lot of different forums and i couldn't go for there for a year so a rehab center is very similar to like an old folks senior living a lot of people coming and going and living there it's a hot spot for viruses so um, but yeah, you're getting, you walk in an AA, they're coming from a lot of different backgrounds, you know, a lot of different areas. Some come from very rich families. Some come from very poor, poor families, black, white men. There's a pregnancy unit on, at this place. There's a lot of different backgrounds and then they're all on the same vessel, just like, like Titanic. Do you, it sounds kind of scary. That place <laughs> sounds kind of scary, but do you feel like. Do you feel like the people that you meet there, that in the rehab, the people that you meet in AA, like are those your people? Do you feel comfortable? Oh, yeah. They're my people. Awesome. I, I I feel most comfortable in an AA meeting. Like I'm I'm comfortable sitting anywhere, but I definitely feel more at one with with people that are like me. Yeah, uh, I can identify on that level for sure. Bill, are you impressed with the studio today? <laughs> I don't know if you can see the amount of traffic in yeah. this alley. you got to start somewhere. And, <laughs> right. Well, I mean, what do you mean? It's COVID safe. Absolutely. That's true. <laughs> it allows our fans a peek into the studio to watch. I mean, Howard Stern has that, like the window. I don't right. know if Howard Stern has that. Well, but, WGN does right on Michigan yeah, Avenue. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're starting off pretty big. Now, the outside noises... Um, I was going to say they can get a little annoying. Usually they're just more quaint than anything. It's the yeah. hustle and bustle of living in a city. Yeah. But the weed whacker, that, uh, that can get a little annoying. Yeah. Yeah. But I, here we are. I, and I, thank you to all of our terrible listeners for sitting through that. And it's really our fault for not having one of those those signs that say on air. Or oh, that's whatever. it. we got to get a red light above the door. Yeah. Otherwise, how are they to know that <laughs> the, the terrible studio is in use? Well, I, I like this particular studio because it seems like a lot of projects have been complete in here. A lot of projects They've have been, been started. started. I knew yeah. that was going to be the answer. <laughs> you can see a lot of them that have been started laying so around. So there's a lot of good intentions in here, correct? Oh, yeah. So well, A lot of good intentions and broken dreams. <laughs> oh, okay. But you got to keep trying. That's you know? right. 
There's, I think there's a lot of tries still left in here. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, Phil. Bill, is I, that, got, I got one more question before we tail off here. Okay. Um, when you're talking about the people that you work with, the people that you see, the people that you help, you use the word guy, guys a lot. Um, oh, yeah. And is that just because you're a healthy Midwesterner and guys means yes. it's very encompassing? Is this only for men that you work with? Um, Someone's met their DEI. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. There, there's a lot of women that I know in the program. So well, because... I don't spend a lot of time in like contemporary 12 step meetings. I go if I'm asked, I'm asked to speak a lot at, at these functions, but I tend to find I'm more helpful at a rehab center. And this rehab center tends to be mostly men. So I actually do sponsor one woman right now. Cool. She is, was already recovered. So I think it would be hard for me to sponsor a woman that has not um, already been through the process that could be, um, you know, there, there, there could be an emotion state, but, you know, there's definitely a lot of women. So when I say guys, I am referring to a lot of guys when I'm sponsoring, but there's definitely, you know, a lot of females that I know in the program over the years and everything like that. Right. And uh, are the resources... Are the resources available for for trans folk and oh yeah trans folk yeah and yeah the, not to deny there's the, the, definitely a LGBTQ you know community and awesome. they have um they they do have separate meetings too uh, on their own um and they they there's a lot of literature on aa.org when it comes to that and there's a lot like I said AA is literally like a 21st century of Titanic. Right. You got people at the captain's table, you know, the Rockefellers making, you know, money. And then you have the people down in the steerage. So, you know, people down in the steerage are not going for a cruise. They're just trying to get to the free world. But you know what happened with Titanic? You know, it hit that iceberg and that water felt just as cold as it did to the rich people as the poor people. Um, but the great thing about AA, unlike those, you know, rescued, you know, passengers, you know, they went their separate ways after that disaster. And within AA, you know, it just doesn't end at that, you know, that sinking, you know, it's about us going back to that sinking ship and, you know, pulling people out of the water. And um, there's a place where there's no class, you know, for sure. There's we, no class. We like in to call here. that the terrible studio. As <laughs> <laughs> as quickly as we both jumped on that, no, no class. No, I, I, I think that's awesome, man. And, yeah, I, I have learned a lot today, and I, I appreciate you, Bill. I have one question that <laughs> okay. hopefully is good for at least one uh, listener out there, if anyone listens. What does someone do if they think they need help? Be honest and reach out. Don't delay. Don't wait. Don't worry about what other th people think of you. Do it, as, do it right away. Um, it's worth it. It's worth it. Anyone that's had to walk through the fear and do that, I, just do it. If you if you think you have a problem, reach out. There's a lot of you know. I mentioned AA.org. Um, there's a, a lot of you know helpful materials out there, uh, and just don't give up. You know, don't give up. Bill, that's great, and I will say as an outsider that just knowing you. And seeing you, it, it, it is very clearly worth it. And I mean, I I admire what you do. I really do. And I've, I've said that to other people before. Again, I said it, something similar earlier. I don't know that I've ever said that to your face. 
and don't ever ask me again because I'll deny <laughs> saying, saying it, but it, it's been remarkable, and you've told me stories. Well, you haven't really told me a lot of stories from your past, and I never want to put you on the spot and, and make you tell mm-hmm. those stories because I know that they're who made you and got you here today and it's about today and yeah. and moving forward but i appreciate you coming on here and and being super open and, and honest and i think you do great work thanks no i no thanks for having me i i do appreciate it and you know today i have a life beyond, beyond my wildest dreams and it's when, when a guy a long time ago my very first sponsor i ever approached in a he's like a bill you're gonna have a life beyond your wildest dreams and I understand what he means by that today. I, what, what's gone on today, you know, I have a, a good home. You know, I'm with somebody that meets my ideal. Uh, I never thought I'd have someone that I'd, you know, all the all the dates that I've been on, you know, I'm trying to find someone that, you know, gets me. I found someone that gets me. Uh, it's a very, you know, simple life, but it's, you know, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world and extremely grateful, you know. Well, she has to be very special or very weird if she gets you, Bill. Both. <laughs> For sure. Very. You've got a nice home. You've got a cat, if yeah. I remember correctly. What's your cat's name? Uh, Poo-poo. Poo-poo. Okay. I didn't name him. <laughs> Poor bleep, guy. Bleep that out later. We, we don't use names on the podcast. That was a trap. <laughs> okay. His his name is... Uh, yeah, he, he, poopy sometimes. You know, he's he's. I love him to death. I never thought I'd be a a cat guy. You know. All right, well, we'll 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 ask for a picture later, and okay. so that we can put it up on the Facebook page or okay. the Twitter or the blog. I don't know. We always say just go to the website. That means any one of our social media, uh, Instagram, Spotify. I don't. You can't put pictures on Spotify. I don't think. But we'll find a place to show poop poo. Okay. <laughs> He's got he's got an ego the size of Gibraltar, so you know. Nice. He'll he'll appreciate that. <laughs> Bill, it's been great. I'm really happy to have you here. It sure thank has been, so, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. This thank is you. something that I think is just super important and and can be valuable in, in so many lives. And sharing your story and being able to talk about it again, it's not something that everybody's willing to do. It's easy to stuff it down and hide it and and feel shame. But I've known you to just want to help and i think and i hope that this is going to help people today so i will let you go and uh end it the way we always end it by saying that this has been absolutely positively terrible i met you back at tonica's fest i confess i was nervous and stressed because i thought you were the best i was right
was nervous and stressed Because I thought you were the best I was right